Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today I will be speaking with Charles Hunley, MD, about his talk presented at the 46th Critical Care Congress in Honolulu, Hawaii, entitled Rapidly Distributing Critical Care Services in Response to a Surge Event with Multiple Casualties. Dr. Hunley is Medical Critical Care Director at Orlando Regional Medical Center in Orlando, Florida. I think it is especially powerful that we are conducting this interview the day after the one-year anniversary of the mass casualty event that Dr. Hunley is talking about, which was the mass shooting that occurred at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida. And um, I, I think we would all like to applaud Dr. Hunley and everybody else at that medical center that did such an incredible job. At the same time, besides the obvious emotional impact, we are all healthcare professionals that are listening to these podcasts. And I think there's a lot to learn um, from Dr. Hanley's lessons in redistributing critical care services in such a situation of mass, mass casualty. So I'd like to thank him for being here. And um, maybe we could start with Dr. Hanley by having you give us a brief summary of your experiences with uh, critical care and with mass critical situations before this event, and tell us about your experiences during that event. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. So I start the uh, podcast and the conversation with, uh, first off, the day after uh, the year anniversary. It's very uh, poignant that I'm giving this podcast, and I want to honor the people who did not survive at Pulse and the people who are still a year out with uh, injuries that will be with them emotionally and physically for the rest of their life. Uh, and the the first responders and the healthcare workers who actually were there that night. Uh, it was a pretty horrific night. And I know that as I get, give this conversation that it is most lessons learned are on the aftermath and how we deal with the acute care crisis. So I am a critical care uh, physician by nature and a medical critical care physician that has some surgical experience, but never uh, in my right dreams did I realize that I was going to have a mass casualty event two blocks from my uh, level one trauma center. I am uh, a physician in the Air Force Reserve as a critical care air transporter, and I've had multiple uh, conversations and drills and uh, critical care events discussed and ran scenarios over many times in the Air Force for battlefield mass casualties. It is a quite different scenario when your level one trauma center becomes overwhelmed with more patients than physicians can handle at that moment and you have to triage a mass casualty event in a level one trauma center. So that night, and I will just start uh, the conversation by thanking um, the trauma team, Chad Smith, and the resident, surgical residents, and the internal medicine residents and the ER residents for flipping modes from um, a multiple event to a mass casualty event. I've never had quite an experience like this, and the lessons learned, we practiced over and over again. It was an event that had greater than 25 patients, as everybody knows, arriving to a trauma center that has five trauma beds uh, within about 30 minute time frame. And that overwhelms the system massively. And then the secondary nature coming in after that. 
So the conversation I would like to start off with is how do you change your mindset from a multiple gunshot, car collision, trauma event to a mass casualty event? And fortunately, uh, we practice it but never integrated all services from ED trauma to critical care in one fail swoop. And so that was a unique practiced but never applied situation. And the lessons learned would be to integrate not just an ER, not just a trauma in ER, but a whole system and understand how your system works. So with that, I'm going to take more questions and then we'll go on and talk a little bit about the scenario as things happened. Yeah, that sounds really good. Well, I, uh, I, I was dumbfounded listening to your description of it for your SCCM Congress talk. It sounded like you had patients arriving basically one patient per minute for a while. And part of that was because you were the level one trauma center. The other part was that you were three blocks from the site of the shooting. And it sounded like you immediately had to start activating your command center and you needed to um, identify the need and to get the extra help that you needed and you needed to start triaging. So what was your thought process? Because you were the chief triage physician that night, right? So I actually ended up being one of the, I say one of the chief triage because it was a, it was a, a team building. So the, the funny scenario, which was never told, was that I was uh, on that night with the surgical critical care director, Chad Smith, who was the trauma, who was on trauma call. And he had called me down and said, I have uh, multiple patients in the trauma bay. And he didn't give me a, quite a number until I arrived to the trauma day. Say, how do you need me to help you? And he said, I have 25 patients right here. We need to triage, and we need to get things done. We had called in our surgeons immediately, a backup surgeon, and called in multiple surgeons that were on their way. And so, as we had to come up with a plan of these people need to go up uh, immediately, and these people are not survivable, we need to move on and triage other people, I ended up being with the uh, chief surgical resident walking through and seeing who needs to escalate their care, who can wait, and who is um, not available to be uh, survived. I shouldn't say it that way, but that's the best way of kind of looking at it is tagging them as you would in an ATLS or a trauma a mass casualty course of color coding them you know, who can be staged into what time frame. And so it turned out to being that all hands had to be on deck and somebody had to organize the process and it ended up being me and the chief um, surgical resident, Corso, so Dr. Corso. Had you practiced this beforehand? How did you establish this communication and coordination hierarchy? So it actually came through the process of, as, as you know, uh, when you activate uh, command and control center, it takes a while for administrators and for the, the command and control team to arrive. At that point, we actually, if you think about it, we had at 210 in the morning to 250 in the morning on a Sunday morning. It's practice, but it's never an ideal time for that type of activation suddenly. And so we had to establish a pathway of this is what we're going. So Dr. Smith and I 
as they sent the surgeons up with the immediate patients to surgery, he and Dr. Corso and myself and the ED physicians started having a plan. This is what we are going to do. And it was a sudden, okay, this is the most streamlined way to triage these patients through that. And we had practiced that in theory multiple times, but never, never all at once. And so the practice that we've done every quarter or every every quarter to every six months with the EMS teams and with other teams kind of fell into this is how we would do it. If you were out in the field or decontaminating somebody and going in, and it just kind of fell in that place. Not in the ED have we ever said, okay, we need to triage in our own ED. Right. Well, I think it definitely helped that you were well drilled. To be doing these drills for um, a mass casualty situation every three months, that's, that, that's quite good, I have to say. And a lot of them, some of them are tabletop, but some of them are coordination. That's why I say in that center, we had just had a coordinated effort with Orange County EMS previous, and I thought it was three to six weeks before then. So we had already had that in our minds of fresh. And to be honest with you, critical care services, most of the time when people do tabletops, they say, oh, we need to clear beds out, which is on the back end is very important for those mass casualty out of the ED. Never, hey, the ED physician needs to participate in this operation. And that was a unique facet that when we usually have mass casualties, we talk about, okay, we need critical care beds to be cleared. We actually, our whole critical care team, surgical, neuro, medical, and even cardiac critical care nurses went to the ED and assisted getting those patients dialed in and and gone to the OR or taking to uh, the, the trauma ICU. And so that was an aspect that we realized that we should actually practice more when we are so overwhelmed with patients to care providers activating other areas of the hospital down. And it actually helped the floor teams, uh, med surge and surgical started taking patients and downgrading them and moving them and helping offload the, the ICU. So it was a really hospital coordinated effort that we had in theory had done, but never actually activated it. Right. It, it sounds like an amazingly adaptive and flexible way to, uh, to, to deal with this. It, it, it sounds incredible. I, I, I wanted to delve into something that is pretty uncomfortable, pretty, uh, pretty raw, but I think it's something that a, a lot of us are probably curious about in terms of, like you said, you know, triaging these victims. There, there were some people who were probably irreversibly injured. There were others who were seriously injured and you needed to make a pretty quick decision about whom to help, right? How, you know, can, can you tell us more about that triaging process and um, how, how, how that happened? So, and that's a really, uh, and this, this goes uh, to the post of conversations of how do you, we actually were lucky enough, we saved, I think the nine that came to the hospital were pretty definable of these patients if we spent and we spent our time having resources on these patients, we would lose other patients. Changing that mindset, and this is in a trauma center when you have multiple gunshot wounds, multiple car wrecks, multiple patients coming in, including cardiac arrest and trauma, with traumas in the same trauma bay, we think of saving or 
coding somebody for a period of time. Uh, we feel, you know, if you if you get there and we can save you. And so you have to flip that mindset. To be very honest with you, you practice it and back to our mass cash course and back to our ATLS with, you know, saying, are they, what condition are they, are they expected, are they, and be able to flip that to saying we have too, we have too many people and that we do not have time to um, resuscitate this patient or code this patient if they're coding the resources on this patient would not benefit another patient. At the time you're making those decisions, you have to make those decisions very um, very quickly. You have to assess the patient and emotionally, and to be difficult of it is um, you have to say to people, this patient compared to the next patient over, this patient needs to have treatment where this patient is expected. In a trauma bay, that is uh, a very, and in, in the hospital, that is something that you don't think about. You think about that as when you arrive on a scene with multiple casualties saying, I need to go to the patient that's going to survive, or I need to take this patient and let him sit for a while because the other one needs to go first. As you get 25, 20, you know, 30 patients sitting there, you have to do that. And luckily enough, we had trauma surgeons that were able to stay in surgery where residents, we could triage them. So we did not have time to code the ones that were expectant. On the back end, you you have to make those decisions and say, this is the best decision at the time. And you will always second guess. It's been a year. And you second guess, did you make those right decisions? Um, ironically, and I will say the story, I was uh, getting a haircut and my barber had a person there that his sister had been shot multiple times um, and they said that they at pulse and that she survived and they were amazed and you remember occurrences like that is okay that was the right decision to make at that point of time and I'm glad that worked out it, it is actually a very uh, it is actually my most burdensome emotional thought is the decisions we made were deliberate were rational and were sudden you have to be okay with that. And sometimes you still question yourself today, if that makes sense. It does. I think it's a, uh, you know, tough responsibility to have. But like you said, you only have so many resources and there were a lot of people there. And there were probably some that would not have survived if you delayed their care. So, you know, that's a tough situation and it's a tough job. I don't. I don't think um, you know anybody could ever be emotionally prepared for it. <laughs> and I guess you just have to figure out how to uh, emotionally, um, uh, you know, come come to peace with it afterwards. Which is what you, you sound like you're, um, you know, still working on, really. And it, it is. It's a. It's a conversation to where we talk about the emotional burden of the victims, the emotional burden of the first responders, and some one of. The, the lessons learned most important is that the caregivers, we pride ourselves, uh, especially in the critical care society and the critical care uh, family in the world, is that we see horrific things every day. 
and that we have to go discuss things with family and discuss things with patients that are very challenging for most people and that we are able to do that with professionalism, empathy, and sympathy. But as things add up and there's massive amounts of burden upon decision-making and emotional taxing, you have to um, come to you know, an emotional um, well-being. And with that emotional well-being, we ignore that. And one of our lessons learned is you know, we need to uh, provide support for the nurses, the RTs, the physicians who sometimes don't want to take it, myself being included, you know, I thought I was tough until I realized, no, this is pretty stressful on myself. And even the administration, when you deal with something of that horrific, that is a, a whole family of emotional uh, stress. And some, that was one of our biggest lessons learned is how do we deal with not just the families, which I think we did an excellent job, but the caregivers. Right. I wanted to ask you an equally tough follow-up question about the triaging process. There were patients who you knew through your experience that um, they, they were not going to survive, and you made the correct decision to not uh, continue with aggressive care on those patients. Did you guys uh, devise a, uh, like a palliative pathway for them? What, 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 what happened to uh, those patients? So we were unfortunate and very fortunate that the, the patients, the patients that arrived to us were uh, coding. They weren't an extremist, were difficult breathing and agonal. Um, the things that you talk about in the military or in a situation that I read about with uh, New England Journal of Medicine and uh, Hurricane Katrina, where you knew you didn't have the resources and they were in agonal state. That actually was probably, and it's horrible to say this, a relief that those patients, you knew that they were either coding or had no pulse or they were a, G, a very low GCS with a, with a injury that they were not capacitated in. And so we didn't really have a pallet of nature in that environment. It was a very sudden event. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> that, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm just dumbfounded. It just sounds intense. Well, you're right. In a way, that made the decisions a little bit easier. Let's switch gears a little bit. What I wanted to do was to list the the lessons that I got from listening to your talk at SCCM about the elements that were helpful. And uh, maybe I could get you to comment on those after I finish listing them. So sounded like the key points were, in terms of you being successful that night, you identified early and got extra help. Uh, you established a rapid triaging system. You had a command center that took a little bit of time to establish, but was there. You actually had a uh, storage system already in place with medical supplies, and you were able to get everybody to continuously replenish your supplies as you continue to care for the victims from the shooting. And you uh, rapidly devised a way to uh, notify the family members of all of these victims that had come in uh, without any known identities. And in terms of the key points is to recheck and restock your storage, frequent drills, 
really encourage collaboration between the different disciplines and to have them be familiar with each other so that you could have a su successful communication channel even during times of extreme stress like this. And you also had very flexible job descriptions for people during these um, disasters where PACU nurses got help from ICU nurses or floor nurses, and it sounded like you had internal medicine residents in the emergency room helping, and the medical ICU and the surgical ICU were both taking care of patients. And they also stressed that preparation is a long-term investment, that it involves financial investment, cultural inv investment in the institution, in operational investment. Well, what are your thoughts about those different elements that I just listed? Wow, that's perfect. So first practice. So having a plan is great in a book, and you just said it. A lot of people in institutions practice a plan in the book, and in the military we call it table topping. To practically apply it, uh, you have to have a storage. We would not have uh, been as successful if we, if we didn't have a resource storage. We you know, and have a plan as once these go out, how do we get back? So we had a plan that had been practiced. Now, this was an overwhelming uh, situation all at once, three blocks away, not a plane crash that's a long place or a mass shooting or it, the the other scenarios that we practice. And so that system was overwhelmed suddenly. Having a command and control facility that literally could come up, yes, in the grand scheme of things, in an hour, well, if you notice, Pulse was like three or four hours. So to get people in and get things, an hour is, is pretty quick. But when things are happening three blocks away, that was a challenging event, but it was successful and they had practiced doing that over and over and over again. Having coordination, you're exactly right. The 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 flexibility of the system was incredible. And when you look back about a year ago, you see nurses that you go, hey, that you came and helped here. Having trauma nurses and, and neuro nurses working together very closely is a very flexible environment. And building that culture of how to be flexible goes in with a mass casualty. We had our CEO bringing chest tubes, if I remember uh, quite frequently, which I was incredibly impressed with. Having the flexibility of residents, residents were the power of our uh, institution that night. And our internal medicine residents helped take care of those patients that were were not as, as sick and could be delayed their care, but needed to have that potent you know, that pain meds, those labs, everything set up for them to, to when their time was to come to move them forward. Uh, our ED worked on, you know, because we had CT scanners, couldn't be instantly with them, fast scans, et cetera, re-triage. So the flexibility was incredible too. Um, having a system to notify the families is incredibly important. If everybody sees pictures of our lockdown, and, and if you look at the papers, you see a police officer on one of our stairs, you can imagine the amount of people that came to our hospital to look for their loved ones that day. Establishing a methodology of when this happens, how do you notify who's here and who's not here? Because unfortunately, there were a lot of people that were not at OMC where people came to see if 
their loved ones survived. And so that conversation of how do you do that in this type of event is as important as the front end. And then the caregiving, you're going to have to provide you know, expert support for the patients, the, the survivors of those patients, uh, and the loved ones of those patients, and most important, the caregivers themselves. Um, we've all heard stories of our nurses on the internet breaking down and crying, and yes, and, and physicians, and many people, because that environment is uh, very stressful. And then the back-end support of how we continue that for multiple surgeries, multiple days. And then the ultimate thing that I didn't talk about is having a good way of communicating with uh, the press, which was incredibly important for us when, beknownst to you, you have a massive amount of people that show up at your door that all want to talk uh, about this event. You, you did also mention that it was taxing to deal with the various uh, VIPs that showed up, right? Yes. So the VIPs uh, are as important as, as a good press communicator because when an event like this happens, people want to be there and you know they want to present their goodwill. And it's important for them to come and understand that this is, you know, this is for the patients and the, the families to understand that you know, the people do care and this is important. But at the same time, you have to find a way of making it to where it's an environment and um, our administration and our community affairs and our, our people did an excellent job of saying, okay, this is the system. This, you have to design a system to basically how, you know, how can they help? How much are they there? And design a process to where they present to support the families, to support the, the team, but not disrupt the patient flow, not make it to where it's disruptive to the healthcare providing uh, system. And so that's a, actually a very big challenge. Right. Yeah, it's it's all really thought-provoking uh, details. And you're right. I, I don't think people necessarily will think about these things right away as they're planning their disaster response. But if it's a big event, and this event, for example, was huge, and it had a lot of political and social implications, so... Yeah, that aspect was going to be there. I wanted to uh, finish up by asking you about um, your retrospective views on things. Anything that you wish you could have done differently? Oh, wow. Well, I, I, every day, you, I, mean, I shouldn't say every day, but it used to be every day. What could you have done differently? Um, I, I personally have a few, like, did I make the right call on this patient? Did I help enough? So on a patient format, clinically, you're always set, you know, you always, to me, I always second guess myself to make myself better. Emotionally, I probably would have accepted the fact that this was an emotional event and I needed to uh, say it's okay to, you know, it's okay for me to talk to somebody, to talk to my friends, um, to talk about, hey, this really was not beneficial for my, you know, for my psyche. Uh, and that that took me a couple of weeks to really understand that, hey, I'm not that strong critical care doctor that, you know, is invincible, that you are going to emotionally be um, a little messed up and that's okay. 
just make sure that you, you know, you've talked to somebody about it. On a logistical standpoint, I will tell you it, we practice and practice and practice. We were very lucky. Can that repeat again? Practicing it now makes a whole lot more importance. In retrospect, every time now that we talk about a mass casualty drill, our eyes all perk up. I wish, and this sounds very funny because it went very, very well considering the horrible circumstances, that I would have known that before this event happened. Would it have prepared me more? Would we have done better? I don't know, but in retrospect, in my mind, mass casualty, and I I actually just did one, a military exercise where they had a mass casualty, and I was extremely serious about it uh, because of the perspective I have now. And so my take-home lesson was is you never know when it's going to happen to you, and taking those seriously of all these things that could happen put it in perspective. Right. Well, you know, you, you just made me realize it's, it's just like any other aspect of medical training. You, you, you have to, you really have to visualize the entire process and be prepared for the entire process. Right. So if you go through it with a high degree of realism, then maybe you'll be ready. And, and, and for, for your group, unfortunately it was a reality, but these things do happen. And, you know, that's, that's a tragedy, but um, they do happen. And we as healthcare professionals are going to be there and do, do, do need to, you know, hopefully provide good care. So I think that's a really important point is that when we do do these drills in our hospitals, it's not, for example, just a checklist to check off, oh, hey, we've done our drill for this year or, you know, for this quarter. It's, it's serious business. Let me ask you one more question before we wrap up. I, uh, I know that you feel very strongly that the victims' families were as much an element of the patient care um, as the victims themselves. And it sounded like it was an overwhelming effort to, to do this. How did you get support for the family members and how were you able to ramp up that support? So our our administration was incredible at this is that quickly people who unfortunately were left uh, in the nightclub uh, were coming to the hospital and our administrators uh, started having an area where people actually came and saw and wait, you know, and were able to um, find if their loved ones were there or they were not longer there. And it, it became obvious to us because we had chaplains, we had we had support teams there. And, and to be honest with you, the community chaplains were there. We started realizing that, hey, we need more and we need to tr- to move them to um, one of the hotels right right next to our center. And we started, and it was an adaptive process to who is here, the comfort of it, and then the support and the nature of how do we continue having that support. And it was an evolution I watched it. I was not personally, because I was a, being a physician, I was not personally involved, but our administrator and our support, I call it our chaplains and our support service, built that network up as needs arised. And they just kept building from the inner circle of notification to, okay, this patient's family is here, so we're going to have to support them through this process. In the country, to be very honest with you, uh, at one point I counted one night, something like I was over 100 to 200 posters of support. And so they sent support. And 
that was a whole other logistics is how do we get all that support that's being sent our way to the families and to the caregivers and patients and the uh, physicians and nurses and RTs and et cetera. So it was an evolution. It was an overwhelming event that we fast realized that we need to build supportive services. And it sounds sounds like a kind of a gray answer, but as it arrived, we built the process. We didn't have that set in stone. At least I don't know we did. Right. Well, it sounds like one of the really wonderful elements of your healthcare, healthcare system during that time of crisis was how flexible you were. You, you, you were ready to actually have an organic process that evolved, and that's to your advantage because it sounds like you were able to flex up. So that's great. Well, on that heartwarming note, I think uh, we might wrap up this podcast. It was a, a huge learning experience for me myself to hear about uh, your experiences because I think it really reminds all of us that it, it could happen to just about any of us you know, at any time. You said this was at 2 in the morning. And, um, um, you know, it's, it's very sobering, and I think it should be a, a call to action for all of us. I would like to thank you and all of our audience for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast please check out our website at www.sccm.org backslash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast team, I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin. Bring SCCM's training courses in initial critical care and disaster management to your institution. Ask to speak with the product support specialist for details on the new Fundamental Critical Care Support 6th edition, Pediatric Fundamental Critical Care Support, and Fundamental Disaster Management Courses. Ludwig Lenn, M.D. is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Alta Bates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.